Miracy. I think people start to feel the so-called imposter syndrome because the people who set the path set standards that worked for them that may not be working for us anymore. And if you set yourself up against those standards, you are going to feel like an imposter. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this is To Lead as Human. For more than 30 years, I've run a business called Leading Large. I help C-level executives expand their impact, clarifying their priorities, energizing their organizations, and building cultures of accountability and respect. In this podcast, we help you envision how to supercharge your leadership by introducing you to executives who lead with intention. These top business leaders exemplify the principles of leading large. They know that as leaders, the positional power they have comes with an equal measure of personal responsibility. These leaders not only deliver stellar value to their customers, clients, and stakeholders, they also prioritize building organizations that provide purpose, meaning, and a healthy environment for their employees. We have the opportunity to learn from the challenges and successes they've experienced on their human journey. With me today is Dr. Maureen O'Connor. Dr. O'Connor is the president of Palo Alto University, one of the leading private nonprofit universities for psychology and counseling in the U.S. Before joining Palo Alto U in 2016, Maureen held multiple positions over the course of two decades at the CUNY, City University of New York, and at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She earned her doctorate and JD at the University of Arizona in a dual-track program in psychology, law, and policy. Throughout her career, Maureen has served in leadership of various professional associations, including the American Psychological Association and currently the Association of Independent California Colleges and Universities. As you listen to Dr. O'Connor describe her leadership experiences in the academic nonprofit environments, pay careful attention to how many parallels there are to your own for-profit leadership experiences. Welcome to the show, Maureen. I'm grateful to have you with me today to talk about your leadership journey. Absolutely delighted to be here, Sharon. Thank you. So um, before we get to the leadership details of your career, I understand that you early on were a clerk for the Chief Justice of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. And I wonder what prompted you at that point to choose academia over a career in either politics or law? That's a great question. And it was an incredible opportunity to spend a year in Washington, D.C., in one of the most critical courts in, in our country, and to work with I think still one of the greatest uh, jurists we've ever had in this country, Patricia Wald. So in some ways for me, I always knew academe was the route. In fact, it was supposed to be only psychology. But then I found I loved studying law. And so the opportunity to serve as a law clerk where you could actually see inside that process was really, really appealing some incredible cases came through that year. They, you might remember the Oliver North uh, case, you know, sort of an incredible, um, just incredible opportunities. And I learned so much that actually benefited my teaching and research all through the rest of my career. Well, I'd love to hear more about what some of those things you learned were. So what's the first position you held where you've defined it as leadership? And what was that like for you? 
Well, I, I will say I was always the head of this or the head of that. Like, I think that was sort of partly because I just was, I don't know, willing to do the work, I think, honestly, every, you know, it wasn't a particular thing. But, but I will say in college, I served on a, on a body that actually really did sort of send me on a, on a direction, which was, it was essentially a watchdog committee for watching over all of the expenditure of student uh, funds. So for clubs and organizations, and I went to Colgate University and a university of that size, it's a fair amount of money. I think it really launched me to think about policy and about governance in a way that I just, I, you know, so I, I do credit that with sort of the beginning. But in terms of my own career, I would say the, the next really powerful opportunity was during the 80s, President Reagan established a task force on victims of crime. It was really the beginnings of the focus on crime victim rights and how to think about, you know, how the system should be treating and working and supporting crime victims. And you can imagine the politics of a presidential task force. So carving out, I, was, I had a director's role, which was sort of above my pay scale, to lead the research effort of that entire operation. And for me, that was another critical moment. And I really do think that is what led me to really um, think about law and psychology together. But that leader, I really felt the weight of the responsibility of the role. That's a lot of influencing going on when you're in a role like that. So a lot of times we lead through influence. In fact, maybe we always really lead through influence, if you ask me. So was there anything as you got through your education process, then when did you start taking on, let's say, managerial roles? Yes. So in the higher ed space, I always say the most important position is not the president, it's the department chair. So if anybody who's been in higher education will understand the critical role that department chairs play, not only in the life of that department and the faculty and students, but in the university as a whole. So as an untenured assistant professor, I was tapped to be the department chair, which goes against every rule that's ever been established. And my senior colleague who, um, who asked me to take this on, we're both sports fans. And he said, the senior people have all done it. The other junior people are not quite ready. He said, you're the only point guard we have. And I thought, okay, I'm willing to assist. <laughs> I'm willing to score when I have to. <laughs> And I'm willing to get everybody else to do what they need to do. Point guard is a really good description. So as you took on this first leadership role, what do you remember first being one of the challenges that you had to overcome? Well, there was one other woman in the department and the other 19 people were men, most of whom were more senior. So I spent a fair amount of time trying to think about First of all, believing I should be in this role. And because they were senior to me in a way, it, I think it helped me to realize I didn't have to know everything, that at least four or five of them had been the chair before me, and the department had run well. So I really think the challenge of how to lead people who are more senior than me was a really good one because it made me humble in a way. And I'd go to one of them and I'd say, this has come up and I don't know quite how would you think about this? Because I didn't have the, all the answers. So I think that was actually really helpful. 
And were they responsive, supportive? Most, yes. You know, I think there were a couple of people who thought I was too young. You know, a bit of, oh, aren't you a sweet, you know, sweet young girl? But I had the opportunity to make quite a few hires. I hired 27 faculty while I was department chair. Wow. I was in a supportive university in a place where there were a lot of people to go to for guidance and help. So I learned a lesson I hope I still have, which is there are a lot of people who know a lot more than me, and I need to keep talking to them. (laughs) Yeah, and I think a a lot of our guests have talked about how early in their careers they had that doubt. Like, this experience you described seems to be one that is often shared by others across a huge range of industries. So I'm actually kind of glad to hear that. And the word humility does come up quite a bit with respect to that learning, I don't know everything, and figuring out it's okay to ask people. So that's a pretty big learning in the early days in general. What were the next couple steps for you as you ascended? What did you learn about yourself that you needed to either amplify or tone down? And how did you do it? Those are big questions. I love them though. Well, I think one, one thing I learned about myself is that it is almost always easier to just do something than to try to <laughs> try to encourage others to do it. And I quickly realized, or I, with my late husband's help, <laughs> that I was not going to make it if I kept up the kind of pace that I was trying to do. And that was a big lesson for me because I was definitely somebody who's like, this has to be done. I, I'll just, I guess I'll do it. Nobody else is doing it. And once you get into a leadership position, that is not either helpful or uh, or effective. Or sustainable. <laughs> definitely not sustainable. And the larger the role, of course, the more so I think that tips us toward this common topic of delegating and how do you know what to delegate, when to delegate, how to delegate. So what did you learn about that? Well, I'm going to say something, you know, maybe not that many of your guests have, have had the opportunity to say, which is, you know, I, I've worked in a shared governance environment. So I think one of the things that's really powerful in academe is it is the responsibility of the faculty to lead. So what I really learned was even less about delegating as it was about empowering the faculty to realize they had uh, authority. So if someone would complain about, I'm tired of students who can't write. It's like, what is it about our curriculum that isn't providing the structured support early enough for students to, to get the writing experience they need, right? That's a very different thing than my banging on the door of the provost's office to say, we need more money for writing, but it was up to the faculty to kind of uh, do that analysis. So I started to better understand how to empower people to realize they can lead from where they are. And they just don't know that. And so I have to, I have to help them with that. Similarly, I think graduate student advising is also helpful in leadership training because it doesn't help them at all if I write their paper, but how do I get them to know how to write their paper? So it's understanding shared governance and really knowing how to make people feel that they have ownership and leadership themselves. So when you say shared governance, just for listeners that might not know what that means, can you just give them a couple of sentences to be sure they're with us? 
Absolutely. So, of course, you have the Board of Trustees of our university has ultimate fiduciary responsibility for you know, the fiscal uh, sustainability of the institution, the long-term you know, uh, sustainability, the policy compliance. The um, president, provost, the, the senior leadership of the university has to run the operations. The faculty, by charter, have the responsibility for the uh, curriculum. So it's really a tripartite set of responsibilities, all of which make up the governance. But we certainly have many trustees, for example, who come out of the business sector, who would have liked me to just order people around a bit more. (laughs) And, you know, that just doesn't work in our world. For long-term change and long-term transformation, it has to be done with all three groups working together. Yeah, it's actually pretty fascinating to me. I'm sitting here listening as you're describing the shared governance, and I'm thinking about the larger organizations that I've worked with over the years and the similarities to that. Because in fact, you do have governance, you do have senior leadership, and they tend to set direction and have accountability to make sure things go the the right way. Let's just make it simple like that. But a lot of the actual bread and butter work is not really done by senior leadership. It's done by department managers, by individual contributors across the organization. So in many respects, I, I think there are some similarities. And thanks for the explanation. So as you were uh, taking on other leadership roles, what are some of the other key stories or learning points, turning points that you can think of that might be illustrative? So I'm you know, very committed to social justice issues and to thinking about equity and, you know, always trying to advance those considerations. And probably the thing I'm the proudest of was that the department had altogether 11 babies were born while I was department chair. And every single one of those faculty slash parents are now tenured full professors in that department. And that never showed up on any performance evaluation there was no metric for it. Um, it didn't, it wasn't a goal. <laughs> um, but I knew that I did a lot of work in feminist psychology and thinking about issues of, um, you know, women's, particularly women's rights in those earlier days. And now, of course, broader gender rights. And, but thinking about how many people we lost out of the academic um, workplace because of the challenges of managing through, you know, childcare. So one faculty member came into my office uh, one day and very kind of timidly, you know, sort of said that she and her husband were thinking about starting a family. And she was thinking she would need to leave because she just need more flexibility and she didn't see how she could do it. So I said, we could lead the way by establishing a a required undergraduate psychology course online, make it available online, do it in a high quality way. And so she was able to teach that course with a newborn at home. And I mean, it's just a simple example, but it gave me the sense of, I do have a lot of responsibility in this leadership role to live out our shared values. And how can I best use this position to to do that? And then 10 more babies later, you know, we had people who felt there was a path 
to maintaining their active research programs, teaching and having families. And that, you know, that is still something I spend a lot of time worrying about. All of the people we've lost out of the out of higher education because or the workplace in general, um, because we could not think outside the box a little bit to best support that. So I imagine that was actually quite an achievement and really made a difference, not just in the lives of those professors, but their colleagues as well, to see that it was possible and then outside of that. But even now in higher ed, what you'll see is there are more than majority women in many professions, in in many disciplines at the assistant professor level, um, still some at the associate professor level, but the numbers are not great even today at the full professor rank. Now, at the president level, there's still only about a quarter of university presidents are women. Yeah. So you, it was a big switch, though. You'd been in New York for a long time, and you'd had a range of different roles there. What got you convinced to come out to California and take on the Palo Alto University role? There's something else about higher education that I absolutely love, and that is the sabbatical. And I had never taken a sabbatical in all of my years because I was administering for, you know, from the almost the beginning. So uh, I took one two years before this job. And what I was trying to determine was, do I spend the rest of my career sort of back on the faculty? You know, I love teaching. I loved advising. I hadn't lost that interest. Or do I, you know, really take this passion I have for leadership or for fixing things maybe <laughs> um, and do something else. And so I was, I think what I would say is I was open to that conversation, even though I was not actively looking. I loved being at CUNY. I thought I would spend my entire career there. And a search firm reached out to me. My name had come up. And so this Palo Alto University was a small university where I cared about everything they were doing. So I thought this is, it would be really interesting to see if I could implement the things that I've been thinking about for so long to get the changes that you wanted to get changed. So it was an opportunity I couldn't pass up. So I think there is another parallel to that where leaders find a field that they're passionate about for whatever reason, that they feel more nourished and they're able to sustain their uh, healthy ways of living and still do the hard work that's needed. Does, does that make sense? It's so important. I don't know that I could have 10, 15 years ago articulated that exactly, but I think we just had commencement and we graduated 100 new clinical psychologists and 125 new mental health counselors and a smaller number of undergrad and master's students. And then to see them walk across that stage, I know the world is better off with them in it. You know, and that goes a long way. <laughs> so I guess that's a great way to shift slightly and ask, what hard things did you have to learn about yourself? And how did that change you? Or how did that change your leadership? Well, I want people to like me, honestly. And I want people to feel supported. And I want people to feel part of a community. But I think I've had to reduce the amount that I think the focus on excellent organizational structure, fair and equitable policies, a strong values position has to be what I fall back on. And if people 
like me, that's fine. But if they don't, I have done everything I can do. So that's something I had to appreciate how much I had probably been overly concerned about that. And in, in, in a leader, it's not the way to evaluate your success. And it is a particular dilemma for women in leadership when we all want to be liked and most of us want to be respected. And those two things can sometimes feel intention, not just for women, for men as well. But I do think that for women, some of the research in the field has shown that that you can really get trapped. So a piece of wisdom for mid-career women that are struggling with this, what would you, is there something you could offer? I think the importance of clarity around what you are trying to do and how you're willing to do it is do not wait for someone else to define that for you. I think people start to feel the so-called imposter syndrome because the people who set the path set standards that worked for them that may not be working for us anymore. And if you set yourself up against those standards, you are going to feel like an imposter. So I think the issue is who set the standards? Are they the right standards? And if they're not, how do we change them? Don't compare yourself to standards that were set in a different time with different conditions. I remember my graduate advisor asked me to do something and I had a two-year-old at home. And I said, no, I said, I can't, I just couldn't do it. And he said, I would never have said no to my graduate advisor. And I was a little bit older as a grad student. And I said to him, yeah, well, and then you went home to your wife who was taking care of every single thing in your life. (laughs) Well, then I thought, wait a minute, the standard you're setting is a different standard that I cannot possibly meet. So I'm not the imposter here. The standard is simply (laughs) wrong. So I would say to mid-career folks, like, what, what standards are you judging yourselves by and which ones should you be judging yourselves by? And don't accept standards that were set by people who simply lived in a different reality than you live. I, I love the reframe of this because I do find that it's, you know, everybody believes this is a real thing, but I think I tend to go where you are, which is let's check what we're measuring against first. So that's, that's really helpful to hear. Thank you. In your role, you have many different constituents that you need to, quote, manage. And I, I use the quotes on purpose, kind of in a, in a reference to leadership, primarily in my, in my mind, being about influencing other equally capable adults. So how does your approach differ, if at all, depending on which audience you are leading or focusing on at a moment? This is definitely part of my learning, for sure. This is not something I think I understood. Okay, let's hear the in-process thoughts about this. So students are one of my main constituents. We are here because we have these amazing students who deserve a high-quality education. And so I've gotten much more strategic about what do students need to hear from me as opposed to from other leaders. So one of our strategic pillars of our strategic plan is student success. So how are the students hearing that and feeling that in an ongoing way? And that's my responsibility much more than 
you know, making sure I'm at the club meeting that, you know, where they're doing, you know, which I did feel at the beginning I needed to. So that's one important constituency, but I've definitely evolved in how I think about the president's role with students as compared to my, to the other leaders and, and, um, and folks at the university. We've done a lot of organizational transformation at PAU and we now have a very strong chief academic officer who really is the academic leader in, in the university. So what's my role with the faculty? My role with the faculty is, again, pu- some public leadership work, some important thinking work and being uh, in spaces to support them when they're in public settings and when we're doing work with the community, um, looking for opportunities for them, um, trying to advance their research by setting up collaborations, meeting people that they, you know, so it's a much, um, it's, it's less of a management role, right, than it is a kind of resource and, and support role. So that's been important. Yeah. My senior team is a big, important constituent of mine. Um, and I've really, I have a cabinet and we meet every week. Um, and I think for my first few years, I sort of set the agenda for that meeting. Now I don't even run the meeting. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. Uh, you know, I run every fifth meeting. Yeah. I have things that I need to put on the agenda and I do that, but so do the other, you know, vice presidents and other leaders of the university. So shared leadership in that sense has evolved for me. So that's another constituency. Another important constituency, and I think this for me is still a work in progress, is our amazing staff. So trying to help the staff um, understand their important role and finding ways to support initiatives that the staff wants to do. And then I have the board and that that is, I had never run a board. I had been on boards, but I had never managed a board when I took position. Um, I needed to really up my game in terms of making sure I'm providing them what they need to be able to provide strategic leadership. So I'll give you one small example of, of that that just happened last a few months ago. We had a, a last fall a retreat, and I started the retreat with quite an extensive list of small college, colleges and universities that have closed. There are all around the country, there's some 50 that have closed in the last few years. So I started with the list of ones, especially ones they would know, and I put it up there, and then I said, I just wonder what those boards weren't asking five years ago. And, you know, all of it was like, oh, you know, and it was like a strategic question that made, you know, we had this fantastic conversation about what were the metrics they missed? What were they not asking the senior leadership? What was evolving? Now, that was in the end of my sixth year. I finally had really supported the board enough to be able to lead strategically. That is a great example. And I think there's been this theme of empowering. To me, I always have felt like the word empower is so silly because if I have to give you power, does that mean you didn't have it to begin with? And so what I think I'm hearing from you, but, but let me check it, is by 
guiding and asking questions and inquiring and expecting people to step up, that is in fact part of how you have empowered or help people see the power they already have. Am I close or what what am I thinking? hundred percent. You were so, I've never, I couldn't have said it quite, quite so well, but I think that that is absolutely correct. It's sort of interesting. I think the concern I have about empowerment, I'm just being candid. You don't want to manipulate people into thinking they have the power. You actually want to give them the power. And there's certain arenas where, you know, you can kind of pretend you're giving someone the power but you actually keep it and then do it. You know what I mean? And that's especially challenging for faculty because they really do have it. And so you have to convince them and a board really does have it. You know, you're not trying to get them to do what you want to do so you can actually do the power. You really want them to exercise the power they have. So uh, we have a unique opportunity with you because you're a very special guest in that you have all of your own training in the field of psychology. And so I guess my first question is, as you're going about your own leadership, how conscious are you about what you've learned about the psychology of human beings? That's really, really interesting. And, you know, I will say my law degree is also useful. (laughs) I am sure. (laughs) In this role. But no, I feel very strongly about the fact that that psychology, it does inform what I do. And I I would say a couple of things about it. One is it's about human behavior, but the methodology is, you know, empirical, evidence-based. So I find a lot of times I'm kind of drawing and relying on thinking like a researcher, right? Part of my psychology training is deep and deep is, you know, research, 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 data-based thinking. You don't just say, hey, this feels like this might work. So that part of my training, I think, really comes into play. I'm a researcher at heart. And so I always ask the question, what are other places doing? Not because I want to copy them, but because I want, you know, if other places have figured out what the best practice is in a certain area, let's draw on that. Like, let's use those data. That's why I like being involved with the Association of Independent California Colleges and Universities. There are 84 of us. And we learn, right? What's the best practice? So that's, that's number one. I think the other part is we are making assumptions about human behavior. Can we test those assumptions against the evidence? Like if we draft a policy, we're expecting certain things to happen, right? We say we're going to have a new HR policy that will, you know, we're going to give an, an extra week of vacation. It's like, well, we're making an assumption about how humans will behave. And so you're, if you're constantly thinking about what assumptions are we making about behavior, and can we then test those assumptions with data down the line? And I think that's a really important part of psychology is, you know, we assume be, p- people will behave in a certain way. We, we, we develop a motivational strategy, right? Because we think we can motivate people by doing X, Y, or Z. It's not policy for its sake, but it's actually because we think this will happen. If we, and by the way, if it doesn't, we should change the policy. Like, let's keep testing those assumptions. And then I think interpersonal relationships, understanding sort of the dynamics of how people interact, how they learn best, 
my favorite course, the last course I ever taught was the teaching of psychology. So I taught graduate students how to teach <laughs> psychology. But really what teaching is also, if you think about it, is we make assumptions about how students can learn. They can learn if I lecture at them. They can learn if they do this quiz. They can learn, right? If, and there are, there's actual research that supports whether those assumptions are true. And we should use the best evidence that we have for how students actually learn, not how we'd like them to learn <laughs> or we wish they would learn, <laughs> but how they actually learn. You have some core values you've talked already today about collaboration, about empowerment, about this shared leadership approach. And it sounds like you use those values or principles to guide the development of what comes next, but then test and evaluate as you go. So a lot of the folks that I coach are senior executives, very often early stage companies or in that really stressful period of high growth. And I find that many of them are anxious and feel really stressed. And I just wonder, what should executives think about when they find themselves really struggling with these emotions in that role? And maybe you can speak from your own experience, or maybe you have some other way to offer some advice for those listeners. But I'm going to guess people would really love to hear that. We hear that quite a bit from people, and we're, we're actually sort of thinking curricularly how we might be able to address some of that, actually. But, you know, there's an area in our field called judgment under uncertainty. And I think one of the most stressful states to be in is having to make judgments in uncertainty. And I think many entrepreneurs are in that situation. They have an idea, they have a vision, you know, but it's untested, right? That's the whole point of it is it's new. And so they're always in a state of some, you know, of uncertainty as to what the next path will be and often having to pivot, right? So they were on one path, they have to pivot to a new path. Now they have to reassess and rejudge. So that process itself, I think, is very stressful. The other piece, I hear it a lot from folks that I talk to. Some of our students have started, you know, startups and things like that. Um, I think knowing when the skill that you had to develop and launch something needs to evolve to running and establishing something. Yeah. I'm still new to Silicon Valley. So believe me, I do not speak with a lot of direct experience. And I'm very aware of that. But I have talked to enough people that were, you know, having the idea and moving an idea forward and, and convincing someone to support it and getting a team and working is very different than running a day-to-day -day operation of, of a company, right? And so I think it's hard. I think that's a hard leadership skill to know when I am no longer the right person for this role. I need a different role. I could see that, right, as being exceedingly stressful because if you're successful, <laughs> you think that would be the same skill set, but it isn't necessarily the same skill set. So that kind of self-awareness is challenging. I have a very dear friend right now who's in a startup that has five people, you know, and when that's 100, you know, that's a very different operation. And when it's 500, I don't think there's a good playbook necessarily for when is the role move from entrepreneur to operator. And that's, that's stressful. I think improved understanding by the public of the stressors, mental health 
challenges that the world is facing, especially after COVID, but even before, I'd hope that more and more of those folks would have the coach and therapist as well, or someone they could talk to about these things. Because at least in some circles, some has been seen over years as somewhat of a sign of weakness that you need that kind of help. I think we're past that. Almost all of us need that, <laughs> that kind of support and understanding how someone in, in that with that kind of specialized training could be useful. I'm very proud of those of my clients that recognize that what they need in addition to the coaching around their executive leadership and their building of a business, that they could also use someone with a therapeutic background. And so I'm very lucky to have a couple of good colleagues to whom I can refer and we can partner nicely around that. But, but I think you're right. And I really do hope that people take that to heart that, you know, it's actually top athletes have lots of different kinds of coaches and oh support. God, so many. <laughs> so why would we not expect and need the same for the leaders of our institutions Absolutely. of whatever kind? So two more quick questions. So I always like to ask everyone, the title of this podcast is To Lead is Human. And I know what it means to me, but what does it mean to you? Oh, my gosh. It's really, uh, I love the title. That's why I'm so, so happy to be joining you today. I think that the reason to lead is to move people, you know, toward goals and values that, that we share. There's flaw, you know, there's learning, there's overcoming, you know, your own obstacles, getting out of your own way. I mean, you as a leader are, are a human uh, flawed and great in all those ways. And the folks you're leading are people first. They're, you know, their employees, their staff, their clients, they're whoever they are in that category. And so they're not widgets, they're not, you know, numbers on a page, you know, they're not any of those things. And so how do you take all of that into account in your leadership and never lose the perspective that you've got this amazing set of people in, in your organization that want to be part of your community? And so how do you make that worthwhile for them and beneficial for the whole institution? And so this is perfect because my last question for you is, what's the one piece of advice you would offer leaders who might be listening if they want to be more successful leaders in that they are building workplaces that really embrace the full humanity of the people working in their organization? I think clarity of values. You know, we, I, I want to give credit to my board for one minute on this. So we did a very extensive strategic planning process, very important wonderful co collaborative with the community, and we developed a draft set of values. We took all of that to the board for, you know, we wanted the board stamp. And the board said to me, a particular trustee, but the rest of the board agreed, you, the community has to set the values, not the board. And we, they sent it back. And we spent the next year as a community having conversations about the values of our institution. And what did they mean? And we wrote definitions and we debated definitions. And we now have a set of five values and we highlight one each year. And I feel confident now, if you come to Palo Alto University, you're going to know what those values are and those have to resonate with you. You know, and it doesn't mean that we're all the same on all of them all the time or anything like that. But that's to me was worth that exercise of really, really being serious about conversations about values. And the faculty, staff, and, and the leadership came together and students and decided what we thought, not what we wished our values were, 
<laughs> but what they actually are. So we felt like they were authentic. This is fabulous. And I'm just really curious, what is one? So this year, the value we focused on, we just finished, was community. And the va- and it has a definition in all of that. But in every event, every communication, everything that we did this year, we thought intentionally about how are we reaching our whole community? How are we, how are we embodying the idea of community in this event? Uh, for example, one thing we did is we invested a significant amount of technological and, and resource resources into improving the hybrid experience for our re- remote employees. So that's a, a kind of a simple example, but if you can't be part of the community, if you can't hear us, if you're on Zoom and we're in the room. So you're converting it into behaviors and practices. That's great. Okay, now this is what the business geeks want to know. And how do you know it's benefiting the organization? So one thing I would say is we just completed a search for our new chief financial officer. And many of the candidates said, you know, the values that the institution talks about and cares about are my values. And that's why I was attracted to this position. Now, of course, the other things have to fit and, you know, all of that. But I really think that is a business advancing (laughs) proposition if we're getting talent (laughs) because of that. That's terrific. So thank you so much today to Dr. Maureen O'Connor for being here for this incredibly insightful conversation. I can't wait to re-listen to it because I learn more the second time around always. Oh, it's just been an honor. Oh, thank you. What's the best way for listeners to keep up with you and what you're doing? Well, I'm on LinkedIn and uh, my email is available on the website. Please, I'd love to hear from people. That's fabulous. Well, thank you again so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Please stay with us for a moment, and I'll share some takeaways and a coaching tip to help you up-level your own leadership starting right away. Hi, this is Sharon. I'm popping in just before the takeaways to remind you that as an executive coach, I'm always looking to support new clients. If you or someone you know might be looking for an executive coach, head over to my website, leadinglarge.com and you could book a complimentary appointment with me. In the first 25 minutes, we'll be able to identify a challenge you're facing and talk about whether I'm the right fit to work with you. I look forward to hearing from you. So I think Maureen shared with us three really important points that I'll highlight for you. And then a fourth point where I'll pull out a coaching tip for you. The first was the importance of clarity. She talked about clarity of goals, clarity about governance, and also clarity about values. And throughout the conversation, I noticed she returned to these themes, specifically identifying how being clear on these three things allows her to adjust and adapt her leadership to each of the audiences with whom she works. The second is she really gave us a beautiful description of the dilemma of leadership that I'll call the, it's easier to do it myself, but is that really best for the organization challenge? Most leaders do face this challenge, especially as organizations are growing. And one of the hardest things can be learning to let go of things you know you're really good at and could do really fast. 
I particularly appreciated the way Maureen framed this dilemma as one of sharing authority and decision-making with others rather than just delegating work to them. Sometimes when we think about delegating, we think about things we want to take off our plate. But when we think about other people's jobs and what they should properly be owning, that's where shared authority really is more powerful. The last thing is we talked about the challenge for a lot of leaders of making decisions under uncertainty. And I particularly appreciated Maureen's pointing out how important it is to identify the assumptions that are at play when you have a decision like this to make. And not just the assumptions about the market or the environment, but the assumptions we make about people's behavior. We take actions expecting people to respond in a certain way. And what we need to do is really look at those assumptions and check, do we have a basis for that? And then we need to watch. Once we took the action, did people react the way we expected or are we getting a different reaction? And if so, what does that mean we should change in our approach? So I found those particularly interesting. The last thing I wanted to highlight for you is the way that Dr. O'Connor talked about, she didn't describe it as coaching, but the challenge for you is to adapt this to how you coach your own team members for development. When she said, it doesn't really help my students if I write their paper. That doesn't really help them do their work. Instead, what she describes is a curiosity, a questioning, and a recognition that their struggle to learn and figure it out, supported by her efforts, will help them learn and grow much faster. So how can you, in your relationships with your team members, shift the way you think about coaching for development to identifying what should you not be doing for others and how do you help them step up and do for themselves. I'm Sharon Richmond, and this has been To Lead is Human. You can find out more about me at leadinglarge.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G, large.com. To Lead is Human is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business and Making It. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Andrew Chapman assembled the episode. Danny Eaney is our executive producer. And post-production was provided by Post Office Sound. Make sure you don't miss upcoming episodes. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And you can now find past episodes on our website as well. If you learned something useful today, take a minute and leave us a starred review. And also tell your colleagues about us. The more leaders we can reach, the better for everyone. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next time on To Lead as Human. I'm Molly Mahoney. I'm Danny Eaney. I'm Virginia Mooskies. I'm Melinda Cohen. I'm Dave Lacani. I'm Michael Port, and you're listening to Making, Making it. it. You would think that when you hit the New York Times list or the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, you would feel like you made it. For me, it never has. I think making it can mean whatever you want it to mean for you. Making it is about having time to spend as I want to spend it. Making it really is about being free to live 
according to your own genuine values and priorities. It's about acceptance. Not only like making money, but make a difference, make a contribution. contribution. Like feeling like I'm making a difference to someone. And I don't think making it is a one and done. I think it's an ebb and flow spiral type of pattern. Making it to me really means being able to bring your whole self to the table. It's really a choice that you make every day. Because the truth is that you do not really know what you're doing until you get started doing it. I'd say that the first seven, maybe eight years was like pushing a boulder up the hill. If there's anything that I could say to my younger self, I would say, really? Like for real, for real? Trust. I would tell myself no shortcuts. No shortcuts. The path is always in front of you, even if it's not clear. The key is to keep moving forward. Everything requires work and effort, no matter how much you love it. You've got to find something that you love, something that you enjoy, so that your work is not a labor, it's not a chore. Don't compare yourself to others. But recognize that if you see someone else doing something that is of interest to you, you can do it also. I had this sensation of, I kind of felt like the walls were shaking and I just felt like, that's what I've been doing all this time. That's who I am. In that moment, I knew who they were. I knew the burdens and distractions and I knew full potential. And then I ended up ultimately in the ultimate Frisbee Hall of Fame as a Johnny Appleseed for taking the sport out to the world. And so I just said to myself, you have to give this a try. If you don't give it a try, you'll spend the rest of your life wondering if you could have done it. The water is always changing and your comfort with that doesn't come from knowing that there is no uncertainty coming. It comes from trusting in your competence to handle that. I like to say, don't emulate, elevate. That's how you're going to make it. Making It is a weekly podcast brought to you by our team at Miracy. New episodes are available on Spotify, Apple Music, and most anywhere else podcasts are found.